0: Good morning, and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin, where you might hear a bicycle wheel being played for the prelude. Never know what's going to happen here. We are a spiritual and spirited community dedicated to the free and responsible search for truth and meaning and dedicated to being in right relationship with ourselves, with one another, and with the planet. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in everyone. And so in the spirit of that heritage, we like to greet one another on a Sunday morning to greet the divine. If you are watching on the live stream, please greet one another in the comments if you have comments on the device you're using. Welcome. Please join
1: me in our words for lighting the chalice. This is the flame we, we hold in, in our hearts, hearts as we strive, we strive for justice for justice everyone. For everyone. This, this is the is light we shine upon on systems of, of oppression, oppression until, until they are no more. This, this is, is the warmth, warmth that, we that we share with, with one another, another as our struggle becomes our, our salvation. salvation. I shall take my voice wherever there are those who want to hear the melody of freedom or the words that might inspire hope and courage in the face of fear. My weapons are peaceful, for it is only by peace that peace can be attained. The song of freedom must prevail. Paul Robeson, African-American scholar, athlete, actor, singer, and activist.
0: This congregation has a mission statement that it wrote for itself and it guides us as we move into the future together. We wrote it on the wall and we like to say it together every Sunday morning. Together we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. Every Sunday we have a moment for beloved community where we say something That might teach us or guide us or give us something to think about about this culture we live in that we call white supremacy culture just because it's organized in order to get white people on top and help them stay there. So I want to tell you about the cold open from Saturday Night Live from a couple of weeks ago where they were having their spoof of Judge Janine's show, and she had brought two liberals on the show, one white woman, a reporter from NPR, and one black cast member who was playing a law professor at Howard University. And so she was talking about the Rittenhouse verdict. The white NPR reporter says, "'I have never seen anything like this before.'" And the law professor goes, I kind of have. And the white NPR reporter says, I was shocked. And the law professor goes, I wasn't really shocked. I can't say I was shocked. And then the white NPR reporter says, this is not who we are as a country. This is not who we are. And the law professor goes, yeah, it kind of is who we are. It kind of is who we are. And so I want you all to think, is the system really broken or is it working exactly like it's supposed to?
2: Today we're talking about being mad and what happens when we let our mad feelings explode out of us and hurt other people. Sometimes when I'm mad, I yell, even though I know it's not a nice thing to do. But sometimes I remember things like breathing and calming myself down so that I don't hurt other people with my big feelings. Now, we all have big feelings. And sometimes it can feel like we're not even a person anymore. Like we turn into a dinosaur that can only stomp around and go, rah. But if we remember our tools to help take care of our feelings, then we can keep from hurting other people with them. Today's story is about what it's like to feel like that angry dinosaur, and it's sort of a funny way of looking at what we shouldn't do, and then what we can do instead. How do dinosaurs say, I'm mad, by Jane Yolen and Mark Teague? How does a dinosaur act when he's mad? Does he roar, slam the door, yell at mom or at dad? When he can't get his way, does he boast, I'll be bad. Is that what dinosaurs say when they're mad? When Papa says no, does he grumble and pout? When Mama says no, does he throw toys about? When he's told to sit still, does he kick at a chair? Does he act as if Mother and Father aren't there? When he hears... Wear a mask, does he give dirty looks? When he's told, quiet down, does he rip up his books? No cookies today? Fling a mug at the cat. Time for bed, does he bang on the floor with his bat? No, a dinosaur doesn't. He counts up to 10. Then, after a time out, breathes calmly, and then he cleans up his mess, and he picks up the mug. He says, I'm so sorry. He gives a big hug. His anger is gone, so he opens the door. Not mad? I'm so glad, little dinosaur.
1: Transcendental Etude. No one ever told us we had to study our lives, make of our lives a study, as if learning natural history or music, that we should begin with the simple exercises first and go slowly on, trying the hard ones, practicing till strength and accuracy become one with the daring to leap into transcendence. Take the chance of breaking down the wild arpeggio or faulting the full sentence of the fugue. And in fact, we can't live like that. We take on everything at once before we've even begun to read or mark time. We're forced to begin in the midst of the hard movement, the one already sounding as we are born. Adrian Rich, American poet, essayist, feminist, and LGBTQ activist.
0: This is the time in our service where we enter into an attitude of prayer and meditation together, where we speak or listen to God as we understand God, or where we listen to our inner wisdom, or where we just watch our breath as it comes in and out of our bodies. We enter into the wise silence together in order to feel ourselves held in the arms of the great love, rooted in deep compassion, where we ask for clarity, where we ask for a little bit of slow down in our thoughts so that we might relax into love. Let us enter into the wise silence together. I'm remembering a friend that I had a long time ago. Actually, we're still friends, which is a miracle. Because the first time we wanted to get together, we both had two-year-olds. And we thought that since they liked playing together at church, they might like playing together other days. So we made a time for Saturday, 10 o'clock, for her to come over to my house with her son and our sons could play together. Okay. So ten o'clock came and she wasn't there. Ten thirty came and she wasn't there. Eleven o'clock came and she wasn't there. Finally she showed up at eleven thirty. And I was mad. But I was in a 12-step program over Eaters Anonymous at that time. And so I had a sponsor, Miss Minnie. And so I called up Miss Minnie at 10.30 when Kathleen wasn't there yet. And I said, Miss Minnie, I am so mad. I just want to eat everything in the kitchen. And I told her the situation. Obviously, hoping for someone to validate that people should be- on
1: time.
0: Now being a 12 step sponsor, she said, this is all your fault. I said, what? My fault. She said, yeah. Did you tell her that being on time was really important to you? I said, no, I shouldn't have to tell her that being on time was really important to me. Being on time is just like a common sense thing. You should just be on time. And she went, you got a choice to make. You can tell her that her not being on time is uh, making you mad or, and then you see what she does with that. Yeah. Or you can just not be friends with her anymore. I'm like, thank you so much, Miss Minnie. (laughs) Anyway, so when she finally came, I said, you know what? I was expecting you at 10 o'clock and I've spent an hour and a half kind of waiting for you. And she said, oh, I'm sorry. I lost track of time. I was out in the yard. I'm like, so it's really important to me that you be on time. For things, I mean, just, or call me and tell me you're going to be late or something. I just can't, I hate waiting for people. She said, okay. So the next time we made a date, she, and I said, how about around 10 o'clock? And she said, do you want me at 1016 or 944? (laughs) And I said, I'd like you here at 944, please. And she said, okay. (laughs) And so we managed each other. But my question is, because today we're talking about uh, how to deal with difficult people and how not to be one. My question is, which one of us was the difficult person? (laughs) Because I think it was her. (laughs) But she acted like she thought it was me. So anyway, um, I think that most of us in here have at least, a, at least one difficult person in our lives. Do we not? Can I get an amen? amen. Okay. All right. Good.
2: <laughs>
0: Talking to people who need to hear this. So, um, and yet, uh, some of us have more than one. And for some of us, it's at work. And for some of us, it's at church. And for some of us, it's in our families. And here are, here's a list of qualities that might make a difficult person. One, you don't listen well to other people. You have fixed and rigid ideas. Two, you are quick to criticize. Three, you focus on the negative and drawbacks to an idea or a situation. Four, you're easily irritated by others. Five, I heard another amen. (laughs) Five, related, you lack patience and tolerance. Six, you're very competitive in aspects of your life. And seven, you're in love with your ideas. I know. And I think it could be that all of us are difficult in one way or the other, um, depending on the time in our lives and depending on the circumstances of our lives and determining really even the time of day sometimes. Because the 12-step people also say you're not at your best when you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. So anytime you get hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, you can turn into a difficult person who's a little bit more rigid and less... uh, Complimentary, more complainy than praisy, and so we can all be difficult, um, like rigid in our ideas. And I think it's important for us to have compassion for ourselves when we get like this. We can just say, "Oh my goodness, I'm hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, and I'm getting to be a difficult person. I'm turning into a toddler." I need to have a nap or a snack, and that will often help, or a bathroom break, like a toddler. So um, having compassion for ourselves is one thing, and having compassion for other people when they're difficult is another thing, and compassion as spiritual people is what we're called to commit to, and it's not easy. Because it feels sometimes like some people don't deserve it. But being a spiritual person, you have to try to be compassionate toward people who maybe don't deserve it. Whatever that means. And also, it can feel dangerous to feel compassion for a difficult person. Especially a difficult person who's doing harm. If you have a difficult person who's doing harm... It can feel dangerous to have compassion for them. But there's this woman who wrote a book called Breakthrough, How to Have Compassion for Those Who Do Harm. And her name's Laurie Perez. She says, feeling compassion toward a dangerous person will not lead you to submit to them or put yourself at risk or condone their actions. What it does simply is to relieve your anxiety, which immediately makes you stronger. And more resilient. And the reason that having compassion for a dangerous person doesn't make you submit to them or condone their actions is because the foundation of all compassion is compassion for yourself. You have to have compassion for yourself before you have compassion for others. Otherwise, you might stay engaged with them um, when they are doing harm. Now, the I Ching, which is an ancient Chinese book of wisdom I'm sure you're familiar with, it says when someone is behaving incorrectly, you disengage from that person until their behavior becomes correct again. Sometimes it's easy to disengage from a difficult person, and sometimes it's impossible because they're, you know, your boss or your partner. So if you can disengage... You can disengage. Miss Minnie used to disengage from her husband. He was, uh, he was a retired sailor. And so she, when he was bothering her with his behavior, she would go, Jimmy, I'm putting you on a ship. You're on a ship. I can't even hear you. So that's how she did it. I feel like I should put out her cigarette, but I've got no ashtray here. (laughs) Yoga teaching has a concept called idiot compassion, (laughs) which I think is a very, very helpful, especially for spiritual people who are trying to be compassionate. Idiot compassion means that your compassion is not helping them and it's hurting you. So if you've got, say, this is like a hypothetical situation. If you've got a kid who's still living with you and they're in their 30s and they're putting all their empty beer cans in your neighbor's um, recycle bin so you don't see how much they're drinking and they're not paying any rent and they're not doing any work around your house, and they're just not even attending to their lives because they're in a stuck situation, and you don't want them to hurt because you love them. Is it idiot compassion to keep enabling them to stay stuck? Yes. If you have somebody who calls you at three o'clock in the morning after they've been drinking, and they have deep heart-to-heart conversations with you and break your sleep, and then the next day they don't even remember that they called you. Is that idiot compassion? Yes. It's not helping them, and it's hurting you. So you all can think of a myriad of examples of idiot compassion. And you can ask yourself whether the places you're having compassion in your life are maybe idiot compassion. I don't know. But just know that there is this concept out there. And you can ask yourself, what does it have to do with me? So, uh, for difficult people that you're having to deal with, it helps if you can detach from them. But sometimes you just can't and you have to deal with them because it's part of your work or you have to deal with them because um, they're one of your professors or you have to deal with them for, because they're your dad. And so you have, you have uh, a couple of strategies. I'm sure there are many strategies. There are probably books full of strategies for how to deal with a difficult person you can't get away from, but I have two to tell you, and one of them is from the 12-step program, and one of them is a little bit woo-woo. <laughs> so I learned the I learned the woo-woo one as a therapist, where people uh, would tell me terrible things, and I had to learn to have shields. So um, there are lots of different ways of building a shield for yourself. Mostly, it's imagining that there is some kind of substance around you, a force field around you, and it can be as porous as it needs to be, because you need to like still hear what they're saying, but you just need it not to go all the way in. Does that make sense? And so you can imagine for whatever sci-fi book you like, a force field around you, or what some people like to do, I find, from my therapy practice, is they like to make a shield out of flowers. And you just take one flower and put it at the tip of your head, and then you sew other flowers really quickly together because usually you need to shield up quick. You just take take the other flowers and just sew them in a big robe around yourself. And certain things can get in, but nothing that can hurt you. Does that make sense? So you can know that, okay, here's a situation where I need to have my shield. And it's not that woo-woo because what you're doing, according to neuro-linguistic programming, is that you're telling your brain what you need it to do. You're telling your heart and your spirit, I need you to hear this and be here, but not let it all the way in. The other technique, other than shields up, is the resentment prayer, which I also stole straight from the 12-step program. And the resentment prayer is... Many of you know it already, and we've talked about it before, is that you pray or wish—I don't care which one you do—you pray or wish for the other person everything for them that you want for yourself. So depending on where you are at your specific moment, you would pray for them that they would have good, healthy relationships, and you would pray for them that they have good food to eat and enough sleep to sleep and enough water to drink— and you'd pray for them that they have a good job to go to that feels good to them, a right relationship with themselves and with each other and with the planet. You just pray for them whatever you want for yourself. So I haven't told you this in a long time, so some of you haven't heard this, but there was a woman in the 12-step program named Dorothy, and um, she was an Alcoholics Anonymous. She and I were friends. And she told me about the resentment prayer. And she said her sponsor told her to pray this for her mother. Because she was having a lot of resentment feelings toward her mother. And her sponsor said, Dorothy, this won't change your mother. But it'll change you. It's going to change, shift something inside you. And she said, Dorothy, you pray for your mother everything that you want for yourself. And Dorothy said, oh... I can't do that. And her sponsor said, Why not? Dorothy said, Well, that would make me a hypocrite. I wouldn't mean it. See, it would make me a hypocrite. And her sponsor from the Deep South said, (laughs) Dorothy, you're a drunk. God forbid you should be a hypocrite. And she said she started to pray it for her mother, not meaning it, but started to. And it started to work, so she had to stop. (laughs) So those are two techniques of how to deal with difficult people. Actually, it was three or four. And then if you are becoming the difficult person, if you find yourself being rigid, you can try just to try to be a little more flexible. And if you're in love with your ideas, I'm sure it's because they are the most fabulous ideas. (laughs) But you might consider the possibility that there's more than one way to do things and that other people's ideas at least need to be heard before you decide that your own are more fabulous. And you might practice praising a little more and complaining a little less. We did this last Sunday and you all did so well with the no coffee coffee hour last Sunday, I wanna say. You did so beautifully. We have coffee today. I know, I'm so excited. And I hope there's not rain. I think there's not rain right now. So we can all sit out in the courtyard afterwards and talk. So when you mess up, make amends and do the best you can to do better. Because when it comes right down to it, and the reason, that we, the reason that we're talking about joy this whole month, the reason that we're trying to be spiritual people is for joy. And it takes practice, though. So we're practicing all these things to not be difficult people. Because relationships are more important than ideas. Relationships are what keep you happy and healthy, if they're good, healthy relationships. And so, relationships being more important than ideas, if you disagree with somebody and you have different ideas from them, sometimes it just has to be okay. Because you want to stay in a relationship with that person, unless they're doing harm, which case you can withdraw. Relationships are more important than ideas. And so just these holidays give us time to practice everything, don't they? Because we're with our family, we get to practice. Um, We're with our friends, we get to practice. It's good to practice. Just remember to be on time for everything. (laughs)
1: Please join me in our words for extinguishing the chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again.
0: Remember the way of the wind and breathe Remember the way of the fire and sparkle and glitter and glow remember the way of the water and ebb and flow remember the way of the earth and grow go in peace